Please turn with me to Psalm 95. And once you've found it, follow along as I read. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands form the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had, not seen, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. Let's pray. Father, what a distinction we feel in the two separate halves of that psalm. Help us to have inquisitive minds this morning, Lord, that want to hear the voice of the Lord. Help us to want to know what you have said, what you mean in your words, and how that makes its way into how we live our lives. You have written this so we might do something with it not so that it might sit on deaf ears this morning. And so we pray to that end, affect the change that would most glorify you, uh, you in us this morning. This is our prayer. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, imagine you are asked to write an essay for a moment. Imagine you're asked to write this essay in which you had to answer the following questions. First, According to the world around you, what is the good life? According to the world around you. So I'm trying to, don't tap into your reservoir of theology for a moment. As coached by the world around you, what is the good life? And secondly, what does the world convey to be the way in which you achieve the good life? So what are all the methods employed? that you, dear patron of the earth, ought to use to get to the good life. So you're starting to formulate your answers before your your pen hits the paper on how you're going to answer this essay. And then lastly, a more personal question, how have you taken its advice and how has it gone for you? How have you personally heeded the counsel of what the world has conveyed to you, whether explicitly or implicitly, in various strategies of how you should achieve the good life. How have you tried that? And how has it gone for you? 
what kind of answers would we get? They're bound to differ, maybe even dramatically so, even if we just took a a poll of those writing this essay that are seated here in this room. But surely many of us would say things that touch on some of the following areas. Probably relationships. You might write something like this. The world around me portrays the good life as always being surrounded by dear friends and loved ones who never backbite and are always fiercely loyal to me no matter what. Even more so, the good life is finding true love with that special someone who will complete me and bring me continual joy at all times. Or, maybe your answer would touch down in the area of money. The world around me portrays the good life as having a low-stress job that provides plenty of money to own a beautiful home, to pay for all my children's dreams to come true, to save for an early retirement, and have plenty of discretionary play money to enjoy life's journey. Perhaps your answer might touch down on sex. The good life is being sexually free, never feeling bound to abide by someone else's standards for what makes me happy when it comes to how I want to either receive or express love. Or perhaps it would touch down on the area of of honor. The good life is being a success. The very opposite of being a failure. The good life is being successful in as many areas as is possible. The true Renaissance man sort of life. Master of as many facets of life as is possible. And this is the path to meaning and purpose for your life. Well, these answers will vary greatly based on wherever you find yourself, even in the world. Different cultures will answer these very, very differently. But if the good life, as we've referred to it, is a cultural shorthand way of describing how our sinful world wants us to imagine the ideal storyline of how our lives ought to go, then all the effort and all the sacrifice to achieve that goal might be referred to as worship. Worship? Yes. Worship. Worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something that engages your whole person. We tend to think of worship only in religious contexts. It fits to where you're seated right now. It it fits. But it's more than that. The Bible envisions worship as that which we revere and that which we serve, whether inwardly or outwardly that most captures our hearts and our very lives. This is worship. True worship versus false worship. Story of the world in a nutshell. Which side of worship do you fall this morning? Psalm 95 lays out both sides for us to examine and then calls for us to make a right choice. So without further introduction, let's examine first the invitation to God-centered worship. We see this in verses 1 through 7, 
B, we'll call it. Not quite all of verse 7. 1 through 7B. We see this invitation now to God-centered worship that the psalmist lays out before us. Well, Psalm 95 has a time-honored place among the Psalter, among the worship of Israel, and among the history of Christian worship. In the early years of the Christian church, this psalm was known as the Venite, meaning O Come in Latin. It served as a guide for worship, calling people to approach the Lord on His terms and in the way that He alone makes possible. However, in light of its well-known and even well-used place in Christian worship, it still puzzles many people as far as how these two distinct tones and halves of this psalm fit together with any sort of logical cohesion. Many have tried to push the theory that the latter half of Psalm 95 must be, it just must be, some misplaced fragment that wound up fixed on the back end of an otherwise wonderfully pleasant psalm. Nevertheless, as chronic spiritual wanderers, like me and like you, it is the second movement of this psalm that causes it to land such a powerfully balanced punch. It is in the warning of verses 7 through 11 that we find gracious guardrails steering us away from hard-heartedness and sin and eventually unbelief. In verse 1 we read, O come, let us sing to the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Now there's more to this verse than what it's typically used as the justification for those that know they can't carry a tune. There's actually more to say here. <laughs> this is my verse. I don't have to sing on pitch. I just got to make a joyful noise. A few more things going on. The psalmist proclaims a call to worship in these opening words. Come, people of God, sing to Yahweh. Sing to the Lord. Lifting your voices in musical praise makes a bold statement, doesn't it? You could find recordings almost anywhere of, let's just say, a group of men boldly, with strength, singing almost any old song. And I'll bet it'll capture your attention. There is just something. I chose men for no particular reason. A group of ladies could equally do the same. People who are singing with purpose capture us. Wow. There must be some truth, some message, something that is worth my paying attention to this. There's a certain inevitable vulnerability in singing. It's kind of us putting ourselves out there. So when we do, there's a certain force that should be matched with it. This is why a church that sings loudly and boldly before the Lord is in itself an awe-inspiring witness. That's my regular prayer for this church, that we would sing well. That there may be other churches that sing better than us. Perhaps their 
harmonic integration of all the voices is just musically more proficient, it's higher, but as far as our collective, heartfelt outpouring of praise, there's nothing that I probably pray for more regularly, is that we would sing truth to one another. And that that would deepen our love for and our walk with the Lord. But musical praise must be made with a particular attitude, the psalm lays out here. We're told to make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. The divine warrior who has rescued a band of slaves from Egypt, leading them through the Red Sea, has become to them a rock of their salvation. Verse 2 parallels verse 1. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. Literally, this means let us meet Him face to face. Let us meet Him face to face. As the Old Testament goes, this is an unusually intimate description. A standing invitation, as it were, to come and behold Yahweh face to face. As one author writes, it's as if God is calling us to look into Yahweh's eyes and to catch sight of Yahweh's smile. What a privilege. To be honest, I started to tear up when I read that. What a thought. Because my immediate reaction was shame. I shouldn't be near him. I shouldn't be given that sort of an audience. Should you? He's God. And he's called you. A standing invitation, as it were, to approach. Come. Come to him. Stand, meet him face to face. What a privilege. This is what motivates David in Psalm 27 to write, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to dwell in His tent continually. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. This is the singular goal that David wanted. Is the Lord's presence, the very thought of it, beautiful to you? Is it a good thought? Is it a savory thought? Do you want that? Does it fit your description of the good life? Speaking to Him in prayer, seeing Him in the Scriptures, singing to Him songs of praise, confessing your faults of things done and left undone, and all these things, are they beautiful to you? That you have this access. We must work to develop this appetite more and more. An appetite to be near the Lord and to love it. And to meet Him face to face. Meeting Him face to face should be done with a grateful spirit, the text says, of thanksgiving. Joyful songs of praise do not spring from hearts who have filled their weak with continuous grumbling and complaining. Those don't go together. We don't rehearse 
something brand new that we'll do on Sunday morning if our week is dominated by a fixation on all that we lack and all that we think God has, if you actually connect all the dots, God, the responsible party, has robbed us of. If you really love me, life should have gone this way, and hence my grumbling and complaining. No. It is with thanksgiving and awareness that you really are nothing before Him. But He has nonetheless called you to come before Him with songs of praise. Approach God with a heart and then a mouth that is filled with thankfulness. And this, by the way, this practice is the very antidote to a grumbling spirit. The, the choice, the practice, the discipline of giving thanks. It, it, it's not that some are born this way and others are not. Certainly, Rachel's grandmother being an example, having attended her funeral just a few days ago, her witness, her testimony being one of those kinds of people, constantly flowing with kindness, thanksgiving. Certainly some might be prone, but it is a discipline. It is a practice that will enliven our souls like nothing else because it gives us a right perspective on what is actually true about us. What a gift this is. Verses 3 through 5 gives us the reasons why we should come and, and worship the Lord. So now the call is given, Oh, come, let us worship the Lord. But why? What are the reasons why we should do this? We read, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands form the dry land. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul says, We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods, for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. So with Paul's words there being sort of the answer key, the Old Testament will oftentimes play along, speaking of God in terms of finding his rank among these so-called gods of the ancient world. This may be another instance of that. But verse 3 reads that Yahweh is the great El, the great God. As you can see on the slide here, the Canaanite god El was known as the highest deity in the pantheon of gods. He was known as the father of years or the father of time, uh, the creator of all things and the father of all other gods. So clearly the number one rival to Yahweh, El, and there he stands, sits in God's hand. He holds the full expanse of the earth, the depth of the earth, the highest mountain there could possibly be, all the seas and the dry land, all that finds its existence, finds its source in God. Verses 6 and 7 continue. O come, let us worship and bow down. 
Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So with verse six comes a a shift in mood. Our celebratory songs of praise find a reverential posture as worship spills forth now in action, namely bowing down and kneeling before the Lord. So this physical gesture was a symbolic way of declaring something similar to our English expression, long live the king, something to that effect. Kneeling and bowing down are the body's ways of expressing a heart that says, I am not Lord of myself. I serve at the pleasure of another. I serve at the pleasure of the Lord, Yahweh. And yet, such formal gestures here should not be understood as as us keeping a safe distance from Yahweh. For such personal language is used here in verse 7. Yahweh is what? He is our God. We are the people of His pasture. We are the sheep of His hand. Such gentle language here demonstrates that Yahweh not only is our King and our Creator, but He is the great Shepherd of His people. What a tender and gentle reality for us. Our shepherd defends us from all evil while tenderly caring and providing for our every need. So given the depiction of Yahweh from these first seven verses here, what reason do you have for not trusting Him? I mean, really? Why not trust a God who has that kind of power that expansive of a kingdom, all that is, is His, and He rules it all, He made it all, and then He lovingly shepherds His own. How can we not entrust our souls and the particulars of our life to Him? Now this might be a nice place for the psalm to end, but it's far from over. We see in verse 7c through verse 11 now, a warning to listen to the voice of God. The end of verse 7 begins with a distinct, or begins a distinct section that leads with a warning. Today, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. What follows is a cautionary tale That's true, by the way, of how God feels when His children go astray in their hearts and they put Him to the test. Verses 8 and 9 continue, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Though they had seen my work, just upping the ante on their accountability. There's a reason why we sang the song of Moses this morning. It's because that's the very song two chapters earlier that these same people that God will later say He loathes this generation. They were singing those very themes. That God is a mighty warrior. He does this. They were just dancing and praising God on the seashores. They had just witnessed the most fierce army in the ancient world utterly humiliated and destroyed in the waters right before them. They are praising the Lord. 
And here, two chapters later, they get thirsty. They get thirsty. Probably really thirsty. Really, really, really thirsty. But still, it was water. And the point is, if God can do that, you've got to trust Him for water. Right? This is what we hear in these verses. This is what is being the point that's being driven home. The scripture that Aaron read earlier from Exodus 17 forms the historical backdrop of Psalm 95. Fresh off this miraculous deliverance, they allowed their thirst to call God into question and to call his watch care into question. Is God really among us? Chapter 17 of Exodus, verse 7 says, they said, he's not even around. He's not even here. I don't think God's here. That lit a fire within Yahweh's heart. Oh, yes, I am. I am right here beside you. Israel's grumbling against Moses led Moses to fear for his life. That tells us it was pretty intense. But more tragically was they're putting God to the test. Moses then called the place Massah and Meribah, meaning dispute and testing. It's what those two terms mean. So the psalmist uses Israel's sin at Massah and Meribah as a prime example now of those who have experienced God's salvation but choose to harden their hearts and to question God's very presence among them. They choose not to take God at His word. This is the sin of doubting God and telling Him He must play by on their terms and according to their precise rules, or else He is not worth their time. It's what they're in essence saying to Him. This is the sin of arrogance And it proved deadly for that generation. Back to Psalm 95, verses 10 and 11 read, For forty years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now God tells us how He feels about this generation very clearly. He loathes them. As is made clear in Numbers chapter 14, the Lord pronounces judgment on this evil generation, causing none of them to enter the promised land. Their bodies would die in the wilderness, it says over and over. To enter God's rest, that we see at the, at the very tail end of Psalm 95 here, they shall not enter my rest. This is the same Hebrew word for coming. Verse 6, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. So it's worth noting then that to some degree, failing to enter God's rest is ultimately failing to know the wonder of authentic face-to-face worship of Yahweh. That's your penalty. You don't get the joy of that. So then, if we're still saying but I don't sense that it's joyful. That's our problem. That's a really big problem. That's such a woe-is-us sort of a moment. If we knew the Lord, we would be jumping up and down when we saw that we can come before Him. And we would say, 
just one little bit of that and I'll take it for all eternity. Please give me more. So to be denied that, they will not enter, come into God's rest where He is worshipped eternally by His saints for all eternity. What a penalty. We must, we must fear that. We, we don't have categories for that kind of joy to our shame. So the psalmist here makes clear that entering God's rest was not limited to Israel entering the promised land, but as verse 7 calls the psalmist's audience today, quoting from God's speech in Exodus, but applying it to the psalmist's day, he says, today, hear God's voice and obey. The message is timeless. There's an age of opportunity, a, a, a moment where, where you have the opportunity to respond. And if you hear God's voice, don't say, I'll think about it tomorrow. I'll get around to it. That's sort of a you know, fourth quarter of life kind of a thing to, to consider. I'll get to it. Today, obey. But this warning section in Psalm 95 is not forgotten by the New Testament writers. For the book of Hebrews quotes and requotes these exact verses as part of an extended argument. And yet another audience, to yet another audience, on guarding oneself against evil, unbelieving hearts that lead us to fall away from the living God. The same peril, the same failure. So in a very real way, the book of Hebrews shows us the pathway for applying this psalm to our hearts. You are welcome to turn with me to Hebrews 3, but I'm going to put the text on the screen. We're down a screen today. I'm going to put the, the words to sort of an extended passage here with multiple verses. And I know this is a little bit different, but I'm going to have you read it responsibly, where I read the section that says reader, and you read where it says congregation. And I want you to make connections that you wouldn't otherwise have unless you had meditated first on Psalm 95. And I want you to hear and to think and to respond. So this is Hebrews 3, verse 7. Mostly, I've... I've trimmed a little bit, mostly through the 16th verse of chapter 4. So following the instructions here on the screen. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the, on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. A direct quote of the second half of Psalm 95. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? 
Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as, as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disbelief, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Since then... We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Christian, the text that we just read admonishes you to hear the voice of God and to res respond in a soft-hearted manner. Hard-heartedness is diabolical. This text counseled you to be on the lookout for, an, for the evil of unbelief that may be growing in your heart. And, not just in your heart, but to be busy watching the hearts of others who may also be prone to the deceitful hardening that can take place in their souls. This isn't being a busybody meddling in other people's affairs, or at least it shouldn't be, but it's a genuine love and care that you are aware and you know something about your own heart that leads you to know something about other people's hearts, that there is a self deluding nature to sin. You may, five years from now, if, persist, if you persist in sin, say and do things you never thought possible because sin deceives. Because it's the very stuff that flows from the great deceiver himself. This text that we just read warns us that it really doesn't matter if you've been an eyewitness to some of God's greatest works that He's ever done, 
namely crossing the Red Sea. That's why he mentions that. These are the very people who saw the Exodus. This is a monumental moment in Israel's history. Always remembering God parting the sea and delivering them. And yet so quickly they turned. That should be a warning to us. It reminds us that our hearts are utterly exposed before God at all times. So it makes no sense to play games with God. To act, to treat Him as if He can't see all of us. To act in such a way that's sort of a sham. I'm one way here at church, I'm one way in front of people, but I'm something else entirely when no one's watching. God sees it all. But to our delight, we are pointed at the end of this passage to a great high priest in Jesus Christ who has passed through the heavens, who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And where does Hebrews 4 leave us? Coming to a throne of grace where we find mercy and grace to help us in our times of need. Ironically, we find ourselves running to where Psalm 95 began. Namely, rejoicing at the privilege to approach the sovereign Lord, who is King and Lord over all. And this is attributed now to Jesus. This psalm, as we look to connect it into our lives, those of us gathered here today, this psalm really is about worship. And to rightly worship God is to find our very life in His presence. Hebrews helps us understand the eternal priesthood of Jesus Christ and how through Christ we have access to God by faith into His eternal rest if we persevere and hold fast. Are you holding fast to Jesus as the only way to God? He is a gracious mediator who understands the temptations we experience because He Himself walked our road and eventually carried our sorrows so we could know forgiveness of sins through His substitutionary death on the cross. It is only through Jesus that you can become the kind of worshiper that pleases God. Psalm 95 bids you come. Jesus in Matthew 11 says, Come, come to Me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will usher you into, enter you into God's rest. Today, this may not be available tomorrow, today, you, you read how much that is stressed. There is an immediacy to repentance that should shake us, that should startle us. So don't delay Find rest in the soul-cleansing worship of God through Christ. Those of us who are part of the family of God, Psalm 95 has been integral to Christian worship throughout the centuries, but its message needs to be central in our individual hearts and in our lives together as a community. We should begin by asking if there are some of us who are simply playing games with God, are we like the Pharisees' whitewashed tombs? Is that a fitting description? Are we outwardly acting the part while inwardly running headlong after sin? 
Has your heart become hardened, causing you to go astray from the Lord who is your rock, your creator, your king, your shepherd? Have you forgotten the sweetness of being in His presence? Do your best moments with the Lord fade in distant memory? Can you relate to the children of Israel? In the latter half of the psalm, we think they just saw God part the waters and deliver them to safety amidst an incredibly fierce foe. How do you forget something like that, right? Well, how do you forget so regularly? How do I forget so regularly? An even greater exodus, Jesus breaking our bonds, defeating sin, triumphing over the grave, and ruling and reigning as our mediator and great high priest now. I've forgotten that this week from time to time. We could easily ask that of ourselves, couldn't we? How do we forget that? Perhaps some of us have grown accustomed to putting God to the test, and we might not even know it. We think, God, if you do this or that for me, then maybe I'll really start trusting you this week. Do we ever think that way? We're always keeping a, our, hedging our bets and keeping an arm's distance. Well, if this goes right, then I'll respond the way you want me to. Then I'll show love. Then I'll do the right thing. But you better do this and this and this and this. Who's in control then? We have displaced the Lord in His rightful place. And if it lit a fire in His heart thousands of years ago, it most certainly does when we do the same thing now. We can, brothers and sisters, who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, still break our Father's heart. We're still accepted in the Beloved. We are still recipients of the grace that is in Christ. But it is possible to break our Father's heart. So we must come back to Him. We must return. Have we lost sight of just how much God loathes this kind of testing the waters sort of attitude? God is after our complete, unmitigated, wholehearted trust in Him in which we move forward in faith, not always calculating things and saying, okay, God, this will work this time. If He calls us, if He makes it clear, we go. Remember, He is not a sheep in your pasture. He is the Master who knows best, and He can be trusted. So soften your hearts this morning. Hear these warnings and receive them as good counsel. They're good. They can cause your brow to furrow and your heart to get a little heavy, but they're good thoughts. And we would do well to take them, to let them sit on our hearts. We need humility to see both God and ourselves with clear vision. And yet Psalm 95 and Hebrews 3 and 4 challenge us to not go at this alone but rather to persevere in our faith as a family of believers. Is this not the context of the entire psalm? Let us do this. This is a call to worship to the assembled gathering of God's people. We are called as to worship in a community. Hebrews then tells us to exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. For none of us 
that none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ. We share the Lord Jesus Christ together. We share Him, which means we see more of Him as we experience the worship of Him together. We say that again. We share the Lord Jesus Christ, which means we see more of Him as we experience the worship of Him together as a worshiping community. One of the best illustrations of this is found in C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, in which he describes the close friendship that he enjoyed with J.R.R. Tolkien, Ronald, as he called him, and Charles Williams. But when Charles died, Lewis mourned, but then began to console himself in the thought that he'd have more of Ronald to enjoy, right? Only makes sense. But what he quickly learned was there were parts of Ronald that could only be brought out by Charles. And now we're consequently lost. So Lewis writes of this friendship, In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. Now perhaps in some small way, this is analogous to the wonder of corporate worship. Personal, private worship, while necessary and oh so important, should find its culmination in the gathered worship with the saints. For it is there we see more of the character and the works of God as reflected in more and more of His redeemed children. We need one another to see God as we ought. We began by asking how would we define the good life? According to this world. So ask yourself have the stories, have the propositions of our broken world captured your imaginations of what the good life actually is? Maybe you've slowly started to actually believe a lot of those things that we mentioned relationships, money, time, sex, honor, success, these sorts of things. And you realize they've taken over a good portion of our hearts. Have you lost sight that these stories, false stories, are actually coaching you down an empty, painful path that does not lead to entering God's rest? So in reality, the only good life there is, is a life of genuine worship before your shepherd king situated within the fellowship of His redeemed sheep. We have been called to meet Him. He says, come, meet me face to face and submit your entire selves as people of His pasture. You're safe there. May God help us to hear His voice and to keep on trusting until we enter His rest on that final day. Let's pray. Our God... Hear the cries of our hearts. We want to want you.
like you desire us to desire you. We know that we do not have appetites that have been shaped rightly by both your word and your character and your deeds, your goodness to your children. We have slowly imbibed more than we probably realize of this world's coaching of what the good life is. And probably without even knowing it, we are pursuing it in so many ways. Turn us, Lord. We hear you. We hear your voice. And I pray on behalf of all of us for soft hearts, that we would not callous our hearts and harden them up and seize up in such a way that we choose to let your truth go in one ear and out the other. Please cause us to know that we're only stiff-arming deep, abiding joy. We want you Help us to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and slowly over time become more of the people that bring a delight to your soul. Thank you for the gift of worship. Thank you for the gift of corporate worship. May we be a people who love to burst forth declaring the praises of our God who has called us out of darkness into your glorious light. It's in his name we pray. Amen.